last week I talked about how the moral imagination in general refers to basically any work of literature that this is a way overly summarized version, but any work of literature that presents a true view of human nature. So if um, that you, this is actually a term that doesn't have to necessarily be Catholic. Like you can have non-Catholics present truth um, and it specifically within a true view of human nature. And even though the classes are going to be on the Catholic moral imaginations, not all these people are Catholic. And actually today, it's not a Catholic. Um, though her worldview is very Catholic. Um, so a true view of human nature. And this is what... Um, all the way back to Plato, etc. What they were all trying to do is they wanted to, like, to delve into what it means to be human. And so when you get that true view of human nature, we can say that that is a story according to the moral imagination. As opposed to the idyllic imagination, which we said was anytime they try to sort of rewrite human nature. Um, sort of start from scratch and, and write human nature as it isn't. And I use the example within pop culture of Seinfeld versus Friends. I thought it was a good example of when Seinfeld is the, in many ways the moral imagination because they present human nature as it actually is. You commit sin, it will make you unhappy. Um, and you will ultimately be miserable and become selfish and end up like that they, they present it very well as opposed to friends where they do the same things and it makes them happy so it's it's a it's a false view of human nature it's not how humans really beings really are and actually there was a great article on that i mean sort of that general topic i remember reading a, around a month ago by a woman who tried to model her entire life after the tv show sex in the city and she like basically became like one of the characters and it was it was in the New York Post, I think the article one of and about how miserable it had made her life. Like how it, it, in the the title of it was Sex in the City Destroyed My Life. Um, because it presents a false view of human nature. Then what Tony talked about how if you want a particularly Catholic element to these stories too, of any literature, I mean some of these are music things, is not just presenting human nature as it truly is. But one of the things that is most characteristic of Catholicism versus um, non-Catholic traditions, even the, even the good ones that, are, that really are presenting a, a true view of human nature, is that um, Catholicism being sacramental really extends the incarnation into all of the physical world. And so there is a common theme throughout a lot of literature of grace, like experience through the physical, um, which we could say is sort of like the, the sacramental side. So in many ways, you could call it the, the, the sacramental moral imagination would be another way of putting the, the overarching theme. Any questions before we talk about how Pride and Prejudice fits perfectly into both of these things? Well, we didn't talk about Jane Austen. Now, um, Jane Austen, I was going to say, obviously is not Catholic. So the time period that she's 
is like there weren't a lot of Catholics in England left at that time. There was a very small creative minority, but she was not Catholic. Um, but like I said before, there is still like a very Catholic residual worldview present within um, a lot of her works. And one in particular, obviously the most famous, because I thought it was the one that people are most likely to have read or at least seen the series, the BBC miniseries, the, the big long one that's really good, um, that is obviously Pride and Prejudice. Now, the two parts I want to focus on in particular are one is her view of love, which is in accordance with a very true Catholic Christian anthropology of view of the human person. But then also within the particular of the story, when we talk about the sacramental side, that it's key within Pride and Prejudice is that when Elizabeth comes to love Mr. Darcy, that she does so in a way that's similar to how a soul comes to love God. And that is through sacraments and icons that she comes to love him, not through direct interaction. Um, and, but, but, but in particular, start with the human nature side. That as Catholics, we've got a human person, and see, this all ties together. Even when I say the, the sacramental is through the physical that we experience grace. But ultimately, you could, we wouldn't necessarily have to put Catholic on the moral imagination part. Because a human being, you know, here's a person, a human being, we say it's a union of body and soul. So just starting with that very fact, that's why God chose the use the incarnation. That's why we have sacraments. Is because God is actually reaching man as we actually are. So the world is sacramental because God made us a union of body and soul. Like that is there's a reason why in many ways you say the Catholic faith is universal because it's not just that the church is everywhere, but it is a universal truth for every human being. Alright. Now having an eternal soul, there's a couple of key parts about it. You have a free will, meaning you think in abstracts, you can think about the nature of personhood, what the nature of the different types of love are, etc. Um, a dog obviously can't think about the nature of doghood. And then having an intellect, or sorry, that was the intellect. And having a free will means that a dog has passions, has animalistic passions and calm instincts. But a dog has to follow them. Um, a dog has to follow their instincts. So that's how you train a dog. You might like to think that your dog likes you. because, But the reason why they like you is because they have to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And you will pro provide some sort of pleasure. That's how you train a dog. You either with a treat um, or with... I don't know. I guess people that beat their dogs isn't a good thing. But usually the, the treat works better. But they have to Having a free will, obviously, we can say to our passions when they are leading us astray, no. Like, I, my instincts say don't do this, but I'm in the face of my, the, what my instincts say, I am going to choose this better thing. And when we talk about making choices, is that choices... We use our intelligence to think about, okay, what is good? Like, what's the good thing to do? So a good thing would be, obviously, um, 
the truest definition of good is something that's in accord with the way God planned it to be, like fulfilling its purpose. So a marker, you, you can say is good because it's doing what it's supposed to do. It's good if it writes um, because then it's doing what it's supposed to do. If it doesn't write, it's bad. So likewise, God having a plan within each of our lives, within particular circumstances, that when you do what you're supposed to do, you act or you think of, you do what's in accord with the will of God, we say that's good. So the way we know it's good is we use our intellect, and then we have to choose it. And you come together, and you have the good. Now, okay, why am I bringing that up? That in the Catholic understanding of love, that the truest form of love, that there's all sorts of different types of love, um, there are obviously we, I mean, this is, gets confusing in English because we use the same word for like, I love cheeseburgers. I love my spouse. I love God. We use the same word for all of them, even though we mean very different things. Um, but the truest definition of love is choosing the good and particularly choosing the good help and helping another choose the good. Um, that's what love is. It is an act of the intellect coming together with the will. Now, we live in a culture where, in general, we have tended to say, well, isn't it somehow restricting to use your will to not follow your passions? Because we still, like a dog, we still have instincts. We still have base passions. Um, sometimes, sometimes they line up with what's good. Sometimes what your passions say lines up with what's good. But part of living in a fallen world and in an account of original sin is sometimes they don't. Sometimes your passions will tell you things that are actually bad for you. Like your passions will say like that these cheeseburgers are so good, just keep eating them. Um, even though you will get sick and die. No, not necessarily just for cheeseburgers. I love cheeseburgers. But... You know what I mean? Like, so the passions don't always line up. But the predominant feature of our culture right now is that if you, to be truly authentic and true to yourself, quote unquote, you just need to follow your passions. You need to abandon your intellect and your will. And so the new definition of love is simply the, the very base understanding of love, of the feeling that a, sort of accompanies attraction to the opposite sex based in the passions. And so sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. Sometimes if I mean you eat something different for breakfast or your sweater's a little itchy, like it might go away. Um, now, so that this is important because this is we're not the first culture ever to understand that people often are going to become confused over what actually love is. Is it just following your passions, or is it this conscious act of the will of choosing the good for another person? And so this is, the, in many ways, the key theme throughout the book of Pride and Prejudice, particularly in Jane Austen. And she gives multiple examples of people that just follow their passions, and they're not good examples. Um, so, and I want to be able to find that, make sure I find my quotes. Um, so the first example you can actually use is 
Mr. Bennett, the, the dad. And that he, in the story, is actually one of the more pleasant characters because he's very witty and funny. But it becomes very obvious um, within it that when he was a young man, he simply followed his passions. Um, and there's a quote in there when it says, let me find it, talking about when he met Mrs. Bennett, that captivated by youth and beauty and that appearance of good humor, which youth and beauty generally give, had married a woman whose weak, and under, whose weak understanding and illiberal mind had very early in their marriage put an end to all real affection for her. So, I mean, she's showing like this very clear example that that's not enough for happy, healthy marriage, for, um, for a life as it should be. And so you see the results is that he doesn't like his wife anymore. Um, and, he, and he basically becomes, I mean, this is the classic example of the, sort of the original sin of men that to sort of emotionally check out. Like that's the, the temptation is instead of like sort of battling through, you say, you know what, I'm going to retreat. So he has his original man cave in that he goes into. And instead of watching football, he just goes in his library and shuts the door. Um, and, and so part of that, I mean, you can see, like, he's not presented as a heroic character in any way, shape, or form. And that what he ends up doing by doing so is he abandons his three youngest daughters to the influence entirely of his wife. And they become extraordinarily silly. Oh, as a quick so reminder, the, so the school has requested that we not leave the doors unlocked. Um, so in the future, if you're showing up late, John, um, that you might want to consider there's that it says emergency exit right there. But if you come around, you can knock at that door. We'll, we can let you right in that door. There's no alarm that goes off um, in case if, if the doors are locked when you show up. Um, so we'll leave them open for like 10 minutes, but then we have to close them because the kindergarten and the K3 are in here. Um, and being downtown, they don't want homeless people wandering through. That makes sense, I suppose. All right, so anyway. So that's a, a good example of, she presents, don't do this. Like this is, unless you want to have a Mrs. Bennett as your spouse, which nobody in their right mind would, don't do this. And then she provides... The uh, further example of the daughter Lydia, who is not a true human being. Like, she is, like, completely bound by her instincts, by her passions. And she has, does not exercise intellect, does not exercise will in a good way. That it is, she simply follows her passions at all times. And once again, it's sort of like a cautionary tale. Don't do this or you're going to end up... Um, in a miserable love. I mean, she ends up married to Mr. Wickham, who doesn't even like her. Um, that, that, that it's very similar. So any questions so far? Like I said, it's pretty straightforward. She's like, this is the cautionary tale. Don't do this. And then it's also key that she puts um, in the example of Elizabeth's friend, Charlotte Lucas, too, showing a little bit that, okay, there is virtue, in just choosing to do what's right. Um, but God is not necessarily cold-hearted either. That 
it is true that marriage, we don't say, isn't um, always just, okay, well, I'm just going to uh, intellectually know that this person's great, so I will choose that, and that'll be the end. You have, so Charlotte Lucas, who chooses to marry Mr. Collins, who's a complete goofball, um, and Elizabeth is sort of like, how on earth can you do this? And she presents it well. Um, so here's actually her quote from her. It's very a sort of unromantic view. And she says, if the dispositions of the parties are ever so well known to each other or ever so similar beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. They always continue to grow sufficiently unlike afterwards to have their share of vexation. And it is better to know as little as possible of the person with whom you're to pass your life. So she takes like this very like sort of cold-hearted, like, oh, here's the object I want. I want to come to my life. She's not, ultimately, she's not even really choosing the good for the other person. She's just choosing for herself sort of this half good. Um, and so as a result is the passions of fall. Because one thing I didn't mention before, that the true view of human person, that when you actually do choose the good as the good, um, that it turns out that the passions actually end up resting in the good. Um, does that make sense? Like that, that, the, that you don't follow the passions, but if you choose the good, the passions will follow the choice. So when Charlotte Lucas, she's ultimately, you can say she's not choosing the good. She's not choosing the best for another person. She's just trying to choose what she thinks would make her comfortable um, in her own life. And she's not entirely fault, like wrong. And there's actually a reason I was listening to, um, it's very unromantic family, but I was listening to a podcast recently. And they were talking about how divorce rates in arranged marriages is minuscule. Um, in the world, because there is a certain degree that if you are approaching from, well, the passions are not going to let me stir, stir me astray, then you can see how that would be the case, that the passions usually will end up following. Um, all right, so that's the sec second example. So, and, so, and even chronologically, she, she does it almost like laying out a thesis. Like, here's one bad example. Here's a slightly better example that's still distorted. And then she presents her good example. So any questions so far? Comments? Anything to add? Snyder marks? Nothing? Well, I think it's interesting. Um, Mr. Bennett, right, he always comes across as like a very agreeable and cheerful and joking kind of person. But the legacy he left for his daughters is terrible. Oh, yeah. And I think he, he actually serves as an example of Lydia, which he can expect from yeah. So when you make those kind of choices, it's not just for you, it's also a generational choice. You know, it continues like, on and on. Well, that's, I mean, when they say you have, there's late, I mean, you could talk about so many different things about true human nature without her things, because she just gets people. There's a reason why just about every character in every book, you're like, I've met that person. I've met that person. I've met that person. Even though that's 200 years ago, I know that person. Um, and, and I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that is a common thing. I know multiple people like that. That's sort of like the dad doesn't really do much of anything. He sort of goes off. He watches football and then the mom runs the show. I mean, and, and it's not this partnership in any way. I mean, you can see that in modern times all the time. Like, that's Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett. I like it. It's, yeah. Yeah, well, the other thing is she's always, you know, um, presented as this kind of 
she, she's the only parent that really does seem to understand no, that's true. Like, it's easy to judge her, yeah. but recognizing that she's actually concerned. I mean, there's a virtue in that she's not concerned about herself. She's concerned about them. Yeah. So, um, I mean, like I said, there's such, and the idea that your choices affect other people, that there's never such a thing as private sin is a common theme throughout it, that every bad choice everyone makes, it affects a whole string of people. Which is another main theme throughout. But, alright. Now. In case you haven't come into the modern area of people living together before that. Well, she sort of does it later. Yeah. Lydia runs off with Mr. Wicked and Lucy didn't want That's true, and they sort of end up with an unnatural attachment because of it that really shouldn't be the way it is, but. I mean, so there's all sorts of things throughout it. But anyway, one of the things that I think that is the coolest about Pride and Prejudice is exactly, like I said, starting in the beginning, about how the way that Elizabeth actually comes to love Mr. Darcy, um, that if you notice, it's not through any ever, not through any direct interaction. Um, that it is actually very similar, what I said before, of how we actually come to love God. And that most of us, while granted this, there's exceptions, think of like St. Paul get, um, getting knocked down, um, that most of us are not, never have a St. Paul moment in our life. Um, that most of us, God does not audibly, like, or Samuel, wake up in the morning with God yelling, Samuel, Samuel. Like most of us don't ever have that kind of direct interaction with God. That our interactions with him, we say, are mediated or they're, they're through, through a medium, that they're through um, other people, they're through written testimony, they are through images, um, that that's how we come to know God. And actually, or we can say is through the imagination in many ways. It's through what is the imagination? It's the forming of images in your mind um, based upon physical things. Um, and so it's the same way that it's interesting that through direct interaction with Mr. Darcy, Elizabeth creates within her own mind a false version sort of in, in his mind that you can say in sort of that puts her in kind of almost like a state of original sin. Um, in that she, even when he finally like comes to her and is like, I love you, blah, blah, blah. She like, she can't recognize him as he really is. Um, that she has like this emotional block because she's built this narrative within her own mind based upon her choices and her, her presuppositions that she can't even recognize the truth. When it comes finally, when it comes to her unmediated, pride. yeah, exactly, pride. And what is original sin? Pride. So it's um, pride stops her from being able to recognize the truth. Um, and so what? What is? What slowly happens is it slowly through um, interactions, um, but not never direct ones. So it's. I mean, it is very. When you look like the Christian life, it really actually fits pretty well. When the first thing he does is he writes her a testimony, um, or a letter. Um, explaining himself as he really is. So he, the first thing he does is he reveals himself through, through his testament. 
Um, and so, and it's only in the first reading, it's, you notice too, that it's, she reads through it first and her emotions like get in the way. And it takes like a constant coming back, coming back to the word, coming back to it, um, reading over and over that her heart actually sl- starts to be transformed. Um, which is an important part. Um, where is it? Here we go. Here's a quote that she read and reread with the closest attention. She put down the letter, weighed every circumstance with what she meant to be impartiality, deliberated on the probability of each statement with little success. Um, but so it takes her, but it takes time and like sort of pouring over it that finally it starts to, um, like I said, to take root. Um, and then the second part um, is when she. So, no, okay, so she engages with the written testimony. And where's the second place she goes after the written testimony is she ends up going to his house. So if you think about that within the context of Christianity, too. So it's so she experiences this him through this revelation, self-revelation, and then she ends up visiting his house. He's not there at the time, but she visits his house. And it's through seeing sort of the glory of his house that she starts to learn more about him. Um, and, I mean, this is also a, a great argument to say why churches need to look like churches, um, for one thing right there. But it's that I also think um, that it's important, too, that, that Jane Austen gets across as well is also the fact that taste matters. Um, that this is an important thing that we do, definitely don't understand anymore. That if we have a, don't understand goodness properly, what it is, what the, the way that they interacts with the will and the intellect and the passions. But one thing we definitely don't understand anymore is the objectivity of beauty. And that therefore, if beauty has an objective element, that taste is not entirely arbitrary. There is such a thing as good versus bad taste. And that training the one's taste is actually a good thing to do because you because God is beautiful. And the more that you train your taste to actually like what is beautiful, you are actually training uh, that it is a moral act. It's not that it's immoral to have bad taste, but you it's it's possible, though, to have something that's morally good where the opposite isn't necessarily morally bad. Does that make sense? So it can be, so you can say it's not bad, like morally, to have bad taste, but it's better. Or you say, good time when, this is when gooder really should be a word. It's gooder to, um, to have good taste. Um, so that's the first thing that it's seeing what good taste he has that she starts to see, wait, maybe there is a moral quality to the guy because um, when she says she, Elizabeth saw with, admiration of his taste that it was neither gaudy nor uselessly fine with less of splendor and more real eloquence than the furniture of Rosings. That there, there's this fine taste. And this is actually even something like having a properly ordained church that having a priest with good taste really does matter. It creates something attractive. That's why we're very lucky at St. Mary's to have a priest with fabulous taste. Like I was I like to teach Father Newman that in another calling, he should have been an interior decorator um, because he just has great taste. Um, and there, it creates something 
attractive that you're like, oh yeah, this is a nice space I want to be. This makes, this actually, it makes, it's easy for, to pray here. It's easy to, um, so any, yeah, any questions so far? Go on, comments? You can make a comment back there. Yeah, I know. That's why it's absurd. Um, it's, it's funny because it's absurd. All right. Um, but then it's also key that when she's there, she receives. So she's had the written word. She goes and visits his house. And then there's two more experiences while she's at the house. That there's, so she's had the written word, the visit, but then there's the oral word. So this is a Catholic thing within there. That it's the next thing is it's the, the oral testimony of his housekeeper that she starts to think, oh, wait, maybe my understanding of him is incorrect. That, that it's the, through the test. I mean, so it's through the testimony of those that know him that she starts to better understand it. And when the housekeeper starts talking about how there's Basically, you know, when she sees the extreme admiration that the housekeeper holds for him and says that there's no more virtuous sort of man out there. So she starts to think, well, how could someone that knows him so well think so highly of him if it wasn't at least partly true? So it's the oral testament. But then it's also important that it's through – this is why going back to that idea of like physical beauty matters or physical representation matters within – um, Christianity because it's also through it's kind of a weird scene but she sees like this little portrait basically of Mr. Darcy and it's through the portrait that she starts to um, like that it's almost sort of cemented like the reorienting of her um, understanding and appreciation of him that it, what it reminds me of is a very sort of Greek Orthodox understanding of icons that somehow that the icon not that it um, that it actually allows you to sort of like not just sort of see a, a representation of the person, but actually that it somehow is like a window to that person themselves um, in, into the supernatural. Um, I think I had a good quote about that, but I'll see if I can see if I can find it. Don't mind me. Hold on a second. Oh, yeah. When it just, it's not amazing, but the quote, but it when it says that at that moment when she sees it, that there certainly was at this moment in Elizabeth's mind a more gentle sensation towards the original than she had ever felt in the height of their acquaintance. Um, so anyway, and it's, so it's through that, that's the last version. And I mean, it's amazing though, when you think there's like, okay, written word, oral word, visiting of the house, the images of the person um, mixed with sort of the, the testimony of those that know, they're like, that is exactly how one is drawn towards Christ. Um, it is, I mean, and I don't know if she consciously wrote it in that way, probably, um, but this is 
when we talked about the different, what makes a good art within that uses the more imagination is that the better the artist, the more subtle the preacher. Um, that there are works when you're like, wow, that was a little heavy-handed. Um, that God love him. I, as much as I like C.S. Lewis, the Narnia Chronicles are not very good art um, in that they are extraordinarily, at least I thought, always thought this, but they're extraordinarily heavy-handed. Um, but they are, in some ways you could say they're good children's art is what they are, in that children are not nearly as subtle at picking up things. So to them, they picking up this, the quote-unquote, the heavy-handedness, it takes their version of subtlety to pick up even the heavy-handedness of the Narnia Chronicles. But within an adult, like that is very conscious that she's written this all within there, but she's very subtle about it. Um, there you go. That's my pride and prejudice. Does anyone have anything they want to add? Questions? You go back and reread Pride and Prejudice. Audible has a great version um, read by Rosamond Pike. Who There's some people... See, this is the key with, with audiobooks. It's all about the reader. If they have a pleasing voice and they do a good job, it's good. So if you don't have a version of Pride and Prejudice, get the Rosamond Pike one. Um, she is an exceptionally good reader. Good, good voice. Um, yeah, in the movie version. Yeah. Or the, the what's her name? The Karen Knightley movie version, right? Um, all right, Tony, you want to add anything? because you're trying to think about something. So what you're supposed to be doing is like think about the mystery and you're trying to imagine it within your mind. Um, so, I mean, because that is a form of prayer. Just thinking, like stopping, and even actually when you read the Bible, like if you actually stop and you try to imagine what's going on, picture it, um, like that is a form of prayer. And there's actually a great example of this, that there's a book by a Dominican priest Named A.G. Sertolange. I don't know if I'm going to mispronounce it. Sertolange. Sertolange. Yeah. Um, but it's entitled What Jesus Saw from the Cross. And it's actually a great Lenten reading where it's basically just a giant, a book length meditation of everything that was going on. If Jesus is on the cross, what he would have seen over there, what he would have seen over there. And it's all designed for helping you sort of picture the scene within your mind. And, but this is a key like Catholic understanding like that the intellect is the ultimately like if you aligning your intellect to the truth is at the heart of holiness um, which obviously living in South Carolina that is not a common Christian understanding where it's usually 
almost like a Muslim understanding, like, well, the intellect, that's just going to trick you um, and keep turn you away from God rather than actually lead you towards God. Thank you. Yeah. I, I just wanted to comment on a couple of things and then sort of introduce next week's, uh, next week's topic. Uh, There's a, there, there's a reason that almost all the great novels of uh, all the great English novels of the 18th, 19th century, uh, they, end in, they end in marriage, mostly. Dickens, George Eliot, uh, Jane Austen, they end in, in, in marriage. Uh, Shakespeare's great comedies all end in marriage. As You Like It, All's Well, It Ends Well, Twelfth Night, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, if you know those plays, those comedies, uh, they're full of mistaken identities and confusions and people that are not sure who's who and what's what and people running around in the woods, <laughs> forest of Arden or whatever. But they, all, they end in everything coming right, everything uh, put back together, uh, people finding each other and getting married. Now, Shakespeare's tragedies, on the other hand, of course, end in dissolution. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, of course, uh, ends not in marriage, but in, in sort, of a, sort of a disordered love that ends in death. Uh, Macbeth is really about a marriage that becomes almost demonic. Uh, it's based upon greed and, and, and lust for power. With Lady Macbeth, one of the strongest uh, characters in all of Shakespeare, who rips that whole play apart. Um, Lear, of course, Lear's daughters are in relationships with evil, evil, evil men. Othello is about the dissolution of a marriage and, and ends in a total bloodbath. Hamlet is based on a, the whole thing is on a, 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 a sort of a diseased marriage between Hamlet's mother and uh, his father's brother. So there, there's, you could take the theme of marriage and, uh, and uh, as, uh, as, as almost, uh, almost the the theme of, of uh, English literature, of marriage symbolizing uh, wholeness and coherence and things being put in order, in the correct order, or else things uh, falling apart. So if you remember that little diagram we did last week, if uh, uh, that, that, uh, that human, uh, human, the plane that humans are on. Human love mirrors uh, divine love or grace. So when, when things are made right, then, then the love between man and a woman reflects God's love for his creation. And when those things are held in the proper relationship, 
that, that human love is a mirror of, of divine love. When this element is ignored or um, done away with, as in uh, a post-Christian culture like we live in, and, and a, essentially in a pre-Christian culture before Christ, uh, then human love tends to degenerate into, into uh, pure selfishness. And then you get a, a, just a, a, what I guess what you call today this a hookup culture where, where love uh, simply means fleeting relationships based on nothing other than as, as in TJ's uh, description, disordered passion or desire. Um, it's hard to argue that, that Jane Austen's world of marriage reflecting a healthy and coherent order it is, a, it is almost inconceivable in today's culture. Uh, in which marriage is lost, I don't mean, not, not in a Catholic culture, but in a general culture, marriage has lost any semblance of, of a reflection of, of divine love. We've not only lost the, uh, the idea of, of marriage as unitive and procreative, but even, even the idea of marriage between, <laughs> marriage between opposite sexes. The whole thing is gone by the wayside. Where, where now, now marriage means whatever you want it to mean, I guess. I mean, I guess you can marry who or whatever you want to anymore. So, so in that sense, um, if, if this is ignored, this becomes, this degenerates is simply the animal level. Puritans or Albigensians and think the only thing that matters is God's love, then, you, then, then we get into these, these medieval heresies, heresies, uh, Puritan heresies, that uh, the body is evil, that marriage is evil, and the best thing we can do is commit suicide, which was essentially the view of the Albigensians and the Cathars in the, in, in the, in the Middle Ages. That uh, Procreation is evil, the body's evil. And of course that's simply going to the other extreme. So in a healthy society, these these two again are, are always held in held together. God's love for his creation, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that ever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Then on the other hand, you've got she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. You want to sing that? Dun, 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 dun. We do the Beatles. It's, it's all, it's, it, it has to be held together. Human love is a reflection of God's love. Because God, that's why, the, that's why there are nuptial, you know that word? There are nuptial metaphors throughout the Bible for God's love. The, the church is a bride of Christ. God's love for, for us, for, for his creation, is, is expressed in 
marriage terms and nuptial terms throughout the Old Testament and and the New Testament. The church is the bride of Christ. So we can't denigrate human love and at the same time we can't ignore its divine aspects. 